Well, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, for those of you who haven't met me before, my name's Johnny. I'm uh, the pastor and part of the leadership team here at, uh, at Hebron. Let me add my welcome to, to Russell's. We do hope that you feel very welcome during your time here uh, with, uh, with us this morning. Um, we've already had our reading. Thank you very much to Russell for reading from Haggai 1. Uh, and it would be helpful, uh, both to me and to you, I trust, to have that open in front of you uh, over the course of the next few minutes as we think about it together. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. So let me lead us in prayer. The psalmist writes, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Our God and Father, we praise you this morning because your ways are perfect and because your word proves true. And so we ask that as we think together this morning on your ways and on your word together, we would please be equipped to honor you in the everyday walk of following Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning with a question. What does your to-do list say about you? What does your to-do list say about you? Whether you physically write down a list each morning or whether you don't, we all have decisions to make each day, don't we, about the kinds of things we're going to do. So let me ask you to imagine for a moment that someone who didn't know anything else about you happened to stumble into your office or onto your desk and they caught a glimpse at your to-do list. What kind of conclusion do you think they'd be able to draw about you? They might have a decent stab at working out what what your occupation is by knowing what you spend your days doing, mightn't they? Or maybe by looking at your to-do list, they could tell how organized you are. I guess the fact that you'd maybe written a list down in the first place, it tells something of that story. They might be able to tell how ambitious you are and how you allocate your time. They'd probably actually be able to tell quite a lot about you just from looking at your to-do list. But perhaps the most significant thing they'd be able to discern about you are your priorities. The kinds of things that you think are important. The tasks that are worth getting done and getting done first. And conversely, the kinds of things that are less important, the jobs that are worth leaving for another day, or perhaps not doing at all. We are starting, as Russell mentioned, a two-week series in the book of Haggai this morning. It is a short book, hence the two weeks, and it's structured around four sermons preached by a prophet called Haggai. And at the beginning of the book, we find the people of Israel in the land of Israel. And that might sound a bit unremarkable, a bit like finding the Scots in Scotland. That's where you'd expect to find them. But it's actually a pretty big deal because it wasn't always like that. See, years earlier, God's people had been settled in Israel, the land that God had chosen for them, and they had enjoyed prosperity there. But because of their repeated disobedience, they're turning their backs on God again and again and again, God had eventually said, enough is enough. And he had judged them. 
And the way in which he judged them was by allowing both the temple, that's the place where God had promised to meet with his people, and in fact the whole city of Jerusalem to be razed to the ground. God's people were taken hundreds of miles away from their home to live in exile in a place called Babylon. But 70 years later, God had brought them back, back to the land of Israel. We read about that in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. And it was all a time of great optimism among God's people as they came home. They started to build the walls of Jerusalem, started to build the walls of the temple again. And it looked like things were back on track, but it proved to be a false dawn. Not long after they'd started to build, the project hit the buffers. And they stopped. And the reason I'm telling you all of that is not as a historical footnote. I'm telling you all of that because in Haggai 1, we find ourselves 20 years after that return. 20 years after all of God's people have come back to Jerusalem. And still, the temple remains a building site. And so the reason I started the way I did this morning by asking about your to-do list is that in Haggai chapter 1, we're given an insight into the to-do list of God's people. And when you read it, it doesn't make for pretty reading. Just look with me at chapter 1 and verse 2. See if we can get that up on the screen behind me. Oh, let me go back one. There we go. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. See, the job of rebuilding God's house, this temple, it's on their to-do list, metaphorically speaking. It's a job that they feel they they know needs doing, but it just happens to be quite near the bottom of their to-do list. And instead, we see in verses 3 and 4 what their highest priority is. Just look at verse 3 again with me. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet... Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God's people felt that building his house was a job for another day. But making sure that they were living comfortably, well, that's what was really pressing. And so as we're going to see this morning, this issue, the issue of of who or what it is that we prioritize in life, whilst it was pertinent for God's people then in 520 BC, well, it remains pertinent for us very much today. Let's think about that under our first heading, the conduct that reveals disordered priorities. Now, it might strike you as being a bit odd so far that that God would be so concerned about a building project. I'm conscious I might inadvertently have made him sound like like a a zealous project manager who just doesn't want the the, the job to kind of fall behind the deadlines, but that isn't the right sense of what's going on in Haggai 1 at all. Just notice why this is such a big deal to God. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. See, in Haggai 1, God isn't as exercised about the bricks and mortar in and of themselves, though they're important, as he is about what lies behind the bricks and mortar. The real issue at play is an issue of priorities. 
See, in putting their own building projects at the top of their to-do list, they've been prioritizing their own comfort over God's honor. Now, you might still be thinking that that is all a a foray into ancient history on a Sunday morning. You might find that interesting. You might not. But what on earth does it have to do with us in 21st century Scotland? Because, frankly, as God's people today, we don't have a temple to build, do we? Well, no. And yes. No in the sense that Christians aren't called to physically build a bricks-and-mortar temple for God now. And yet, yes, as Christians, we are called to the task of temple building. What do I mean? Well, in the New Testament, God's people don't gather around a physical bricks and mortar temple. And yet the idea of the temple, it isn't treated as being obsolete or being completely done away with in the New Testament. Instead, in the New Testament, we're we're told about the temple being fulfilled, That's the kind of language the New Testament uses of the temple. It's fulfilled in a number of ways. And there's one way in particular that helps us to understand what Haggai 1 temple building might look like for us today. In the letter of 1 Peter, Peter describes you, if you're a Christian, as a living stone. That's what he says you are, a living stone. And he says that if that is you... As a living stone, you're being built together with other living stones into what Peter calls a spiritual house. And what he's talking about is the church. The church, and and by church I don't mean a building, a structure, but people, people like you and me, the church is a temple. It's where God dwells, lives among his people. And that means that the book of Haggai isn't just a history lesson, because as Christians today, we are called to build that temple, that church. How do we do that? Well, we do it by either strengthening other living stones, other Christians, helping each other to mature, or by growing the church, telling other people the good news of Jesus so that they might become living stones too. And all of that means that Haggai definitely does apply to us today, and it actually means it might apply in quite an uncomfortable way for some of us. Let me return to the question we thought about a few minutes ago. What does your to-do list reveal about your priorities in life? Do the things that, that, that you give time to indicate that temple building is a priority for you? Or does your to-do list instead suggest that your priorities might lie elsewhere? Now just notice in Haggai 1 that the Israelites knew that they should be building a temple. It wasn't that they thought it was unimportant. They just didn't think it was important now. And it it can be a bit like that for us, can't it? I I would be surprised that if you're a Christian, that you would find it doesn't really matter whether you tell other people about Jesus. I'd be surprised if you thought that. I'd be surprised if you were a Christian and you thought that it doesn't really matter whether you help other Christians in their walk with Jesus. It might be the case, but I'd be surprised if you thought that. But what wouldn't surprise me one jot is the thought that temple building, important as it is, it just isn't a job for right now. Because there are always pressing things to be getting on with, aren't there? 
I know it would be good if I could ask my colleague or my course mate if they could come to church with me or maybe read the Bible with me. I know it would be good if I committed to serving the church family at Hebron, spending more time trying to encourage my brothers and sisters in their walk with Jesus, but dot, dot, dot. And we might fill in the blank with any number of different things, mightn't we? It's really hard to serve or commit to telling someone about Jesus with my kids being at the age they're at. Once they're a bit older, then then I'll give it my attention. I can't commit to both church and to work at the same time. Once I'm a bit further up the ladder, once I'm retired perhaps, then I'll have a bit more flexibility and then I'll have time to get to temple building. It's really important, it's so important that I give my everything to university or my college course while I'm studying. Once I've qualified, once I've secured a job, well, well then I'll have the kind of steady, st- settled stability that, that will give me time to, to crack on with telling people about Jesus. Temple building is on my to-do list, God. Bear with me and I'll get to it eventually. Now, please don't mishear me because, of course, there are periods in life when serving Jesus looks a bit different. And of course, we serve him by, by bringing up children to know and love him or, or by, by being godly employees or godly students. But Haggai 1 would at least have us ask ourselves a question. Is the reason that I'm not engaged in, in temple building, investing time in either growing the church in depth or in breadth, is the reason that I'm not really engaged in that because my interests are more important to me than God's glory? That may well be a searching question for some of us. I guess it was for God's people in Haggai 1. But as well as there being a real directness to what God says to his people in Haggai 1, there is also a bit of an irony to it. I wonder if you noticed that. In verses 1 to 4, God's people are are prioritizing their own standard of living over God's honor. That's, That's why God addresses them as he does. And yet, as we read on through the chapter, what's interesting is that by the very act of doing that, by prioritizing their standard of living, well, that standard of living is actually falling off a cliff. Let's think about that under our next heading, the consequences of disordered priorities. Just look down with me to verse 6 again. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. See, the big issue in Haggai 1 is that God's people are really invested in their own standard of living over anything else. And yet, despite that, their standard of living is actually hitting the buffers. Harvests are poor, so they haven't had enough to eat or to drink. Although they've been earning money, it's like they're putting it in a purse with holes in it. It's like sand through their fingers. And God says there's a reason for that. Verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And, And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
See, God's people had committed themselves to their own interests over his, all the while forgetting that without God, the God who created and sustains the universe and everything in it, well, their own interests were destined for disaster. In summary, God's people here were being denied God's blessing because they were neglecting God's glory. God's people were being denied God's blessing because they were neglecting God's glory. Now, what does all of that mean for us? Because as God's people at this point in salvation history, on this side of the cross of Jesus, God hasn't promised us the same kind of material prosperity as he did to Israel. But there are ways in which we experience God's blessing when we prioritize his interests over our own. Jesus said so himself. He said this in Luke chapter 18. He said, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus promises that people who prioritize him, who follow him, will be blessed. What might those blessings look like? Well, they might look like the blessing of seeing someone you know and love come to trust in Jesus for themselves. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It might be the blessing of being part of a living church family where you are known and loved and where you know and love your brothers and sisters. That's one of the wonderful privileges of following Jesus. Now, Hebron is a church family where many, many of us do know just those kinds of blessings, where people are committed to God's glory. But I wonder if all of that, if all of what we read in Haggai 1, might well serve as a wake-up call to some of us. Just as poor harvests were a wake-up call to God's people in Haggai 1. See, if the idea of seeing someone you know and love come to faith in Jesus for themselves isn't really that interesting to you. Or if church is an event you watch rather than a family you belong to and you serve, well, it might be worth asking yourself a couple of questions. Firstly, as we thought about a few minutes ago, might those be signs that my interests take precedence in my life over God's? And secondly, Am I therefore robbing myself? Robbing myself of the blessings that God has promised for prioritizing his interests over mine. Well, so far we've thought about conduct that reveals disordered priorities. We've thought about consequences of disordered priorities. But what are you to do if you're starting to think that perhaps you have been prioritizing yourself and your own comfort over God's glory? How do you go about addressing that kind of problem of disordered priorities? Well, we're going to think about that under our final heading this morning, the cure to disordered priorities. Now, um, a few years ago, um, a photo of a Virgin Atlantic employee went viral on social media. The photo showed the employee at work having fallen asleep on the job. You might remember hearing about it at the time. It didn't just go viral because the employee had fallen asleep. 
It went viral because in the photo, standing behind the Virgin employee and smiling for the camera was Richard Branson, the founder and the CEO of Virgin. Branson had just dropped into a Virgin office to try and raise the spirits of some of his employees when he happened to find one of them catching 40 winks. Now, I really don't fancy being in that employee's shoes. I don't know about you. But let me ask, if he had known that Richard Branson was coming in for a visit that day, do you think he would have still decided to grab a nap? I think not, in all likelihood. Because sometimes being made conscious of who it is you're really working for, well, it can change your attitude and your approach towards the work itself, can't it? And that principle... Well, it drives the change that takes place in Haggai chapter 1. I wonder if you noticed that. Think again about the attitude of God's people at the beginning of Haggai 1. They're postponing work on God's house because they were comfortable living in their own shiny paneled houses. But then have a look on towards the end of the chapter. Read verse 12 with me again. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. See, the people respond to the voice of the Lord, and they fear him, verse 12, and then as we read on, verse 14, they get back to work. And that is part of of how disordered priorities start to become rightly ordered in Haggai 1. God's people prioritize God, not just because Haggai has cracked the whip and he's a pretty ruthless foreman, but because they have a right view of who God is. They respond to his word. Now, if anything of what I've described in verses 1 to 11 of Haggai 1 so far rings true for you, if if your conduct is the kind of conduct that might reflect disordered priorities, then Haggai 1 would have you consider, I think, whether that might be a symptom of a more deep-rooted issue. Whether you have it clear in your mind just who it is you're serving. See, if you see God, the God of the Bible, as being small or dull, or uninteresting, as being peripheral to your life, perhaps even as a bit of a hobby, well then of course it makes sense that his interests are going to come pretty low in your list of priorities. But if we see him as he is, the creator God of the universe, who hung stars in space, the one who has not treated us as we deserve, but through the cross of Jesus has forgiven us, welcomed us into his family, well, it starts to change things, doesn't it? Of course, we wouldn't be put off serving him until later if we see him as he really is. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian, can I firstly say thank you very, very much for coming. We're really pleased you're here and you are so, so welcome. Please do come back. And it is just worth clarifying something at this point in case you get the wrong end of the stick. Because in Haggai, God didn't decide to make Israel his people because they built for him. See, they were already his people. He'd already chosen them. He'd loved them. 
He'd rescued them from exile. And then they were called to build for his glory. And that same pattern still works itself out today. Christians don't serve our God to try and build up credit. It's not how it works. We serve our God because he has loved us with the most extraordinary love. He has forgiven us for our rejection of him. We are his people now, his children. And so we serve And you can see how that kind of flips religion on its head, doesn't it? Religion says, I serve and obey, therefore I'm acceptable to God. The good news of Jesus says, I am accepted and I'm loved beyond measure. And I know that for an absolute fact because of the cross of Jesus. Therefore, I obey and I serve. Now, if that surprises you this morning, if that raises questions for you, if you'd like to know more about what I'm talking about, then please don't sit on your questions. Get in touch. Speak to someone here about that. Speak to me after the service if that would be helpful. I'd be really, really pleased to do that. Well, so far, the chain of events at the end of Haggai has gone something like this. One, the people obey God's word, having viewed him rightly, verse 12. And then two, the people start serving him, verse 14, and get to building. And so the application to us seems pretty straightforward. We view God rightly, and then we knuckle down. Simple as that. Or is it? We've missed something out along the way, because something else happens between them fearing God and serving him by building the temple. Just look with me at verse 13. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, You see, it isn't just just white-knuckled obedience that makes them get going with rebuilding, is it? God himself is with his people as they work. God himself stirs them up to work. And that same principle, again, bears itself out for us today too. Remember, Jesus' words at the end of Matthew's account of his life. Jesus said this. He said, "'Go and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, or in Haggai Haggai 1 terms, go and build the temple. And, says Jesus, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Can you see, God was with his people in Haggai, stirring them up to serve him and honor him by building the temple. And he is with his people today by his Holy Spirit stirring us up to serve him and to rightly honor him. And that means that as we consider our own priorities as Christians, as we spend time reflecting on who he is and appreciating that he's absolutely worth serving, well, it's important to remember that we don't do it on our own. We need his help. And so as you perhaps consider your own priorities this morning, Christian, 
can I encourage you not just to do that by sheer white-knuckled obedience or by a sense of foreboding guilt. Ask for his help, the help of the Holy Spirit, his help to give him the right place in your life, his help to pick up the tools and start building, even in the conversations you're going to have with colleagues and friends and family members 24 hours from now when you sit down in the office tomorrow morning. As you build, he is with you. He promises he is to the very end of the age. And so as we close, let me take that counsel and ask him for his help for each of us just now. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we praise you this morning as the God of all things. We praise you as one who's shown extraordinary kindness towards your people in Jesus. Rescuing us to yourself, making us your people, undeserving though we are. And we ask this morning that you would please, in your grace, help us to give you the right place in our lives. To view you as you really are. And that you would please help us by your Holy Spirit to pick up tools and start building for your glory. Telling other people the wonderful good news of the Lord Jesus. Serving one another as living stones as part of this church family here at Hebron. And finally, Lord, for any here who have yet to trust in you, we ask that you would please make yourself clear to them. They would find themselves being warmed to you and to your good news this morning. And we trust in you, perhaps for the very first time. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen.